Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Road to Know Her podcast. This is a brand new podcast aimed to educate, inform, and empower women so we can take control of our health and well-being. I'm Emmy. And I'm Alex. And we're trying to fill in the gaps of knowledge when it comes to our bodies and well-being. And each week, we'll sit down with leading experts in the field of women's health to discuss a wide range of topics, including nutrition, contraception, fertility, and everything in between. So let's jump in. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. Today's episode is all about fertility. So we're talking about fertility because it's a sort of topic that hangs over women a bit like a spectre. It's always there, but there are a lot of myths about it. And I definitely don't know what is actually fact and what's not. Yeah. And we're definitely getting to that age now where loads of people are talking about it. Everyone's suddenly like, I'm going to start freezing my eggs. And you're like, oh my God, this is all quite a lot going on. Yeah, it's terrifying. I don't know about you, but... I have tended to just ignore the actual idea of fertility or try to push it away for most of my 20s because I don't know if I want kids yet. So I don't know if it's fully relevant. And I also, I guess I'm a little bit scared of it. So I've just tried not to think about it. A hundred percent. And also because we're kind of conditioned our whole lives we've grown up being like, don't get pregnant, don't get pregnant, don't get pregnant. And then suddenly you're faced with this thing being like, well, what happens if I do want to get pregnant? I don't know. Like, there's no one talking about that. They're all just talking about how not to get pregnant. <laughs> that is such a good point. It's your first 15 years, like 15 to 30, basically trying to... All right. Were you, were you... <laughs> busy old 15-year-old there? <laughs> I'm not saying that I was having loads of sex at 15, all right? Just PSHG lessons. <laughs> but yeah, it has just been like the first 10 to 15 years yeah. to be like, avoiding pregnancy at all costs so you kind of know the tricks of the trade to not get pregnant but you don't know how to get pregnant and what happens if you can't get pregnant the reason why we wanted to talk about fertility options as well is because it's a very confusing world there are a lot of acronyms so many acronyms IUI IVF and I have no idea what half of it means yeah so exciting so We're really lucky today to be speaking with Kate McLaren, who is a consultant gynecologist and an accredited specialist in reproductive medicine and surgery at Chelsea and Westminster NHS Foundation Trust. She leads the fertility unit there and is well knowledge in fertility, gynecology and menopause. Let's go. Woohoo! So I wanted to start with sort of the basic question that probably most people are asking that 
If you do have issues with infertility, what are the options available to you? Are there multiple options or is it sort of the standard approach? And what is the process of getting into that? Yeah, I mean, nowadays there's actually a whole range of options for family building. Um, and it's very much an individual decision, um, depending on your own circumstances, because um, obviously there's so many different families these days. Um, so, I mean, there's a whole range starting from sort of the, the various fertility treatments, so different types of insemination, IVF, I'm sure we'll talk about more, more about that a bit later. Um, and then you've got the kind of donor treatment, so if you need to do IVF donor eggs or sperm. Um, but then, of course, you've got all the other um, options that don't involve fertility treatments, like um, fostering, adoption. And actually, I always think it's worth talking about as well the option of, you know, kind of positive child free living as well, because, um, you know, more and more people will be choosing that option. And I think that's one that we don't talk about very much. So it's, it is a difficult decision often for patients um, to know which route to go down. And I think that's why it's really important to get sort of professional advice, someone who can assess your individual situation, looking at, you know, what type of couple are you in or are you single and um, what are your fertility factors the financial situation all these things what's acceptable social socially to you and then helping give you that individualized advice and guidance to help decide what might be the right option that's such mm. so many options but that's such a great point because even starting this episode I, I thought if you have issues with fertility the next steps are instantly to think about how to fix those issues with fertility and how to try for a baby within your own body and yeah I didn't even think about all the other different options and you're so right that it's good to actually take a step back and think about the wide range of options which don't necessarily involve doing anything to your body. Yeah it's really interesting couples or uh, single people often come to me and they they sort of have done some reading and know what they want and I always exactly as you say take a step back reassess everything and just lay out really clearly what their options are because it may be things they haven't considered um, and sometimes it's just a case of actually you don't need treatment and actually you know giving them the stats about how many people will still go on and conceive naturally given their circumstances you know as well so um, I completely agree you know obviously we want to do what we can to maximize chances naturally as well so it's really important to go through all those things diet mm. lifestyle timing of intercourse all these things to, to maximize that. And what is the process of that? How often, how long do you take to go through sort of the natural processes before you try something like IVF? That again has to be um, individualized. Um, so I'm going to be really evasive to all the answers because it so does depend on who's sitting in front of you. Because obviously, if you're seeing someone who's, say, 30 and has been, you know, trying for maybe just less than a year and you would do some tests if you don't turn up anything too, you know, too significant. You'd be very proactive for them to keep trying naturally for a little bit longer, potentially. But if you've got someone that's in their later 30s or early 40s, probably already has slightly low ovarian reserve, then you know that that clock is ticking a, a little bit faster. And so you're more likely going to recommend proactive treatment more quickly in that stage. And um, so, so typically what I do when I see someone is take a history from them, if they've got a partner as well, take the history from the partner and then do some baseline fertility investigations, see them again after those, and then try and give them that individualized advice. 
And then when we're talking about those proactive treatments like IVF, um, I've heard of IUI. I don't know what that means. But what do all these things stand for? And what do they what do they actually mean? Because I feel like I've heard of IVF since I was about 10, but I still don't really know what it means. Yeah, exactly. So there's when you're thinking about fertility treatments, there's three main groups that we would do commonly. So the first is OI or ovulation induction. And um, so that's, um, again, one that's not really mentioned that much, but it can be really, really useful treatment. And it's essentially what we do is give some medication to make you ovulate. So oh. obviously, normally we should ovulate every month regularly. And that's reflected if you have regular periods, you could be pretty sure you're ovulating. But for example, for people with very irregular periods, commonly due to polycystic ovarian syndrome, and they don't ovulate regularly. And so a really simple treatment could just be to give them some medication to help them ovulate. And then they have intercourse at the right time in the month when they're ovulating. And how invasive is that treatment? What does the treatment actually look like? Is it injections, through pills? Um, for ovulation induction, it's typically just some tablets. So first line we give things called, people will have heard of Clomid or Letrozole, another one we're using, just five days of tablets. And then often one or two scans to see if you've um, formed a follicle. Um, one of the risks of that kind of treatment is if you respond to the medication quite highly, you might develop two, three, four follicles. And of course, we need to be careful about multiple pregnancy. So one of the reasons that we do the scans is to check that there's not a risk of twins, triplets, or even higher order pregnancies. So as long as they've just got normally one or two follicles, they could, we, can, we can trigger ovulation and they can have sex around the right time. So it's pretty uninvasive. Un, un Occasionally we use some injections as well. But I, um, ovulation induction is probably considered the mildest of the fertility treatments. So it can be a really good first line option in people who, who aren't ovulating regularly. Then the next option is um, in, intrauterine insemination. So this is the IUI um, that you mentioned, Alex. So IUI, we need you to be ovulating. So either we use your natural cycle or we use a medicated cycle, just like in ovulation induction. And then at the right time in the month, we use either the partner's sperm or the donor's sperm. And it's prepared in the lab. So it's prepped up in the lab in a centrifuge to concentrate the sperm, try and get the good motile sperm all together. And then we inject it, well, just through a little tube into the womb, through the cervix, put the sperm sample in, and then we leave the eggs and sperm to do their thing naturally and hope, you know, hope it achieves a pregnancy. And how many sperm do you have to put in to make it work? Is it like up your chances, put lots in, or is it like one will do the job? <laughs> well, I guess at the end of the day, one could do the job, but, but optimum. So sperm, if you're looking at sperm quality, the numbers and um, normal sperm concentration would be over 15 million sperm in every mill of semen. Oh, wow. So it's huge numbers. <laughs> okay. I was Wow. <laughs> That's so many. I can't believe that. Also, IUI to me sounds like a training camp for seamen. It's like getting them the best they can be and then going for it. Exactly. Get them prepared, ready for business. <laughs> 
But at the end of the day, it's not as effective as IVF. And so that's the compromise. So IUI is really good for people who can't have sex. So if they've got, you know, um, psychosexual difficulties, find it very painful to have sex or on the male side has, has some um, erectile dysfunction can be really helpful in that situation and then obviously for single women or same-sex female couples um, uh, who are using donor sperm but don't have any other fertility issues it can be really really useful but the success rates of IUI you're looking at about 10 to 15 percent per cycle so it's not doing that much more than nature and I think people are often surprised at, at how low that that sounds um, so you when you're going into it, you have to expect to do multiple cycles really and how many can you do that on the NHS and how many cycles would be covered on the NHS? Well, that's a really difficult question to answer. So um, I'm, I'm sure as we'll probably go into a bit more detail later, the funding for fertility treatment um, isn't done nationally. It's devolved to our local commissioners, which are called ICBs. So this is why we have this awful postcode lottery for um, fertility funding, mm -hmm. where you can be in different boroughs and um, you get, there's completely different rules for, for funding. Um, so just as, for an example, where I work, we treat patients from Northwest London and Southwest London. And in Northwest London, the funding own, is only effective up, they have to start treatment before the age of 40. Whereas in Southwest London, they have to start before the age of 43. So they have, you know, completely different age restrictions, which is crazy just across, you know, across the river. Um, and so again, with IUI funding, there's different rules. So, um, Typically, to give a generalisation, most CCG or ICBs would say if um, IUIs indicated, people could have up to six cycles of that. And then you would think about moving on perhaps to IVF if it hadn't worked. And does it hurt? Is it quite invasive? Or Because I'm guessing if you go into somebody's cervix, it's, it's not terribly comfortable? It never ceases to amaze me. The resilience of fertility patients and what they put themselves through is incredible. But um, IUI, I mean, it's there's definitely worse things. It, it's it's a bit like a smear test. So you know you have to have a speculum and then, but it's just a really really fine catheter, soft catheter we use. So it's it's not um, it's not too bad having it done. You get a little bit of cramping pain, but most people cope really well with it. And can you go into yeah. the detail of IVF and explain firstly what those letters stand for and what the process is? Yeah, so IVF is in vitro fertilization, which means fertilization taking place well, in glass, i.e. in a lab. And the process of that is that rather than just producing one follicle in the month, we want to try and make the body produce lots of follicles, which then should hopefully each contain you know, an egg so that we can get multiple eggs. So we have to kind of super boost the ovaries. So we give injections to make the ovaries hopefully produce several follicles. And that requires quite, um, you know, quite regular monitoring. So that's why there's lots of visits up to the clinic to have scans and sometimes some blood tests. Um, and then after around about a couple of weeks of, of injections, around 12 to 14 days, we should hopefully see some nice mature follicles. And that means that, that you're ready for egg collection. So we give a final trigger injection and then very precisely 36 hours later, we have to do an egg collection procedure. And the egg collection 
initial procedure is done usually done um, vaginally. So we, we, we do an internal scan and then we put a little needle through the vagina and collect the eggs from each side, <laughs> which I know doesn't sound very nice, but it's done under some form of, of anaesthetic um, or a sort of conscious sedation. So you get painkillers, sedatives, that kind of thing. It really takes about 15 minutes or so. Um, and usually it's pretty straightforward. And so we collect the eggs. Then again, if, the, if there's a partner, he gives a sperm sample or if, if we're using donor sperm, we get the sperm. And then in IVF, this eggs and sperm are mixed together in essentially in a dish in the lab. Um, and we let the um, sperm fertilize the eggs overnight that night. I think one of the really common um, misperceptions is, you know, the picture that you always see of IVF online, which is an egg being injected uh, with a needle. That's not actually IVF. That's a technique called ICSI, which is a different way of fertilizing the eggs, where um, if there's a problem with the sperm, the embryologist will pick the sperm and inject them into the egg. So um, there's two ways. We, we do one of those ways of, to fertilize the eggs. And then you find out the next day how many embryos you've got. So that's a really nerve wracking point. And then we grow the embryos in the lab, typically for up to five days. And then we do an embryo transfer um, procedure, um, which is, again, it's a bit like the insemination procedure. So vaginally, we just put a little catheter tube through the neck of the womb, delicately pop the embryo back in. Um, and and then, then patients have the horrible two-week wait until the pregnancy test. So just to sum up, so we've got IUI, we've got IVF, and then we have got the ovulation induction. Is there, a, is there any more? Are those sort of your three options? I think those are, those are sort of the, the big groups. Um, obviously, yeah. everything can be broken down a little bit more depending on using kind of donor eggs and sperm. Um, and then um, you've got the sort of home insemination option as well that we haven't talked about yet for mainly for um, uh, same sex couples um, would be using that. Um, so there are, are a few, but those the ovulation induction, IUI and IVF would be the kind of top three fertility treatments that I'm doing on a daily basis. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So I'd love to pick your brain about this. So I'm in a same-sex relationship. I don't know if I want children yet, not that far down the road. But I have known ever since I've watched television and lesbian television for the past 10 years that, that you can get a chicken baster and do it yourself at home. Is this true? Thankfully, they've made the kits a little bit more scientific than that these days. So they do at least look like medical sort of devices in some way. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or not. But, um, but yeah, so um, home insemination, look, it's, it, it's a little bit tricky because the HFEA, which is the fertility regulators, um, they don't recommend home insemination um, because it, typically you're using uh, a donor that you know or someone that you've maybe met through an agency or online and they haven't gone through the, the screening processes that they, that they would if you were going through a regulated fertility clinic or well, you could you could get them to do that but usually they haven't but at the end of the day it's it's an option that is being used by lots of you know lots of um, female couples and um, very successfully and in actual fact in order to get NHS funding as as a female couple in a lot of CCGs you have to have done 12 cycles of insemination at least six which have to be IUI in a regulated you know um, fertility clinic so actually by default the CCGs are pushing or the ICVs are pushing patients to do, to do home insemination so we've got a complete conflict you know which is, is really difficult so I think we have to acknowledge that home insemination is is a, a, a commonly used option and what people do is they buy typically buy kits those kits come with a little pot for the sample and then a little syringe with with a quill some of them even come with a speculum <laughs> if, you, if you're brave enough to let wow. someone do that and essentially you, you monitor really closely when you're ovulating so usually using like an ovulation test kit and yeah at the right time you do the insemination so trying to put the, the sperm really as close to the the cervix as possible um and yeah i mean sometimes we even sort of you know can guide patients a little bit in the clinic sort of show them just to ensure they're a bit confident doing it and it actually people manage really well so it's it can again for for either couples who have some kind of sexual dysfunction um or anyone who needs to use donor sperm that's it's, it's a really commonly used option because it's a lot cheaper than having to you know as well go through the the regulated fertility clinics and this might be a really mm. silly question but how long can the sperm survive out in the dish before the insemination do you have to time it really precisely so yeah we don't like the the sperm to be out really for too long not much more i mean really needs to be within 90 minutes ideally should be inseminated Oh, wow. That's a really quick turnaround then. Wow. The longer the sperm's out, you know, it, it liquefies and then they become less motile. So they're not going to be as quite as effective. So you do need to get it in reasonably quickly. <laughs> that's quite intimate, isn't it? You have to, instead of somebody just dropping their sperm off at your door, you have to say, you need to come in, you need to do it in the other room and then you need to get it to me really quickly. <laughs> 
<laughs> you can see why people, you have to have a sense of humor going through all of this because it throws up all sorts of things you'd never expect to be discussing. <laughs> it suddenly feels very unsexual and just very bodily functions. We are just bodies producing things. <laughs> and then when you mentioned that same-sex couples have to have, I think you said six or 12 rounds of IUI before getting that treatment. Is that private IUI? Yeah, I mean, oh goodness, this is uh, just such such deeply unfair, you know, rules at the minute. And um, so, yeah, it has to be six. Well, to generalise, most areas would say probably six cycles of IUI in a licensed clinic, which would be private. Um, which you know, uh, to be fair, um, on the government, so they released their women's health strategy last year, and um, which specifically mentioned um, same-sex couples, and and they sort of recognised this financial burden, and that they'd said that from April this year they were going to completely change the funding, and um, so that they wouldn't have to self-fund IUI, and that the NHS pathway would start with that, you know, because obviously it's it's hugely discriminatory the system at the minute. Can't believe Definitely. that, and also it's not a cheap process. What, what? Can you sort of say typically how much that would cost for six sessions of that? Yeah, well, I mean, each cycle of IUI, so just the cycle is going to cost you between one thousand and one thousand five hundred. But then that doesn't include the donor sperm. So each vial of donor sperm costs about again depends on the clinic about one thousand to one thousand five hundred. And so you may and you may need several vials for several. We'll need several vials for several cycles. So really, really expensive process. Gosh, so you're looking at sort of wow. fifteen to twenty thousand pounds. Potentially, yeah. Better start um, saving. And if not, if I don't choose to not have kids, I can go on a really nice holiday. <laughs> <laughs> and can I ask about one more option I've heard of, um, which is where you can take your partner's egg and it's inseminated and then I think put in the other partner. Is that quite tricky to do? I can't. I don't know the name of it, but is that more widely available these days? Yeah, we're seeing more and more um, couples come through for this option. Effectively, it's like an IVF cycle, but you sort of have two patients. So there's different terms used. Shared motherhood is one. Essentially, what we're doing is the, the IVF process um, in one patient where we stimulate the ovaries, collect the eggs, the same as you would in an IVF cycle, fertilize them and then grow the embryos in the lab and do the transfer in the partner to so put the embryo back in the partner who actually carries the, the pregnancy. So it's a really nice way of doing it. So both kind of experience, you know, being part of it. Um, and then sometimes people swap over and do it in reverse for a second baby or do it at the same time. We've got patients so that they deliver nearly at the same time. So yeah, really nice way of doing it. Yeah, that's a very lovely option. And also I thought it it would be completely different to IVF, but I can see now how it is just sort of mirroring that, but with two different patients rather than one. So yeah, that makes that makes complete sex. Sex? <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to speak to you because we're sort of, I'm 29 and we're getting to the stage where some of my friends who aren't ready to start thinking about kids and things like that. And we're, uh, people are starting to have conversations about egg freezing. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know the options there for us. Firstly, how much it would cost to freeze your eggs and what are the actual chances? What is the success rate if you do freeze your eggs? Yeah, it's been really interesting. I think particularly since COVID, um, 
we've seen a huge increase in the number of um, people coming to freeze eggs. The, uh, the HFEA, the fertility regulators, have just released um, up-to-date data. And it, it just in the last two, three years, there's been kind of doubling of, of egg freezing numbers. Um, I, and I think, I don't know whether it's just following COVID, people felt that everything was delayed. And then also just people are becoming much more aware of it as an option. And I think it can be a useful option, but again, it's about going into it with your eyes open and really understanding the facts, the process and the success rates of it. It's essentially the process of egg freezing is, is, is fairly straightforward. Typically, you'd see a doctor, you'd have a couple of baseline fertility checks. So one to check your ovarian reserve um, and maybe a scan just to check the womb and ovaries. And then it's very similar um, to the first part of IVF. So again, we just give the injections over a couple of weeks to make the body produce multiple follicles and do the egg collection procedure. Uh, and then those eggs are frozen. So typically just takes about two weeks. But th the key thing in terms of the success is how many eggs you've got frozen and what age you do it at. So if you're doing it under, you know, under 35, um, if you have 20 eggs frozen, that's going to give you about an 80% chance of having a live birth. Oh, so, wow, that's really high. So that is good. But if you leave it so until late 30s or 40s when you're doing it, suddenly you're going to need 40, 50 eggs frozen to, to give you anywhere near that kind of same, same level. And the difficulty is how many eggs can we get in one, one cycle of egg freezing? So typically we get somewhere between about eight and 12. But again, that depends on your your own ovarian reserve, your age, your individual response to the drugs. So the problem is to get these quite high numbers of eggs frozen, you know, 15, 20 or more, depending on your age, you, you may have to do multiple cycles of egg freezing. And that's where the cost can escalate quite quickly. So again, typically in London, say, the cost of egg freezing is probably in the region of about five, to six thousand pounds a cycle by the time you include all the drugs and things the fertility drugs are really expensive and so you know depending on how many cycles you need that you know can be really really costly it's interesting I've, i just again in the last year or two so many more companies and in, insurers are actually covering it now so it's it's something that i think people are realizing is a really good incentive for their employees yeah, I know Facebook now cover it for all their employees if they if they want to do it, they'll Facebook will pay for it all, which is amazing. I think there's two sides of the coin though, isn't it? Some people do say that it incentivizes women to sort of stay on at work and dangles that carrot that you might lose your your place in your career if you go go away and have a baby. So it's better to freeze your eggs. So I personally would love the option for our company to pay for it, but I can definitely see both sides of the coin. Yeah, I completely agree. It's such a difficult one because I see I see both sides. But at the end of the day, I, I do believe that I like women being able to have more choices. And if you have that, op, you know, have that option, I think it probably shouldn't make you change your fertility plans too much. But it just means that you've got, you know, hopefully a backup plan. But I think you just have to be aware that it's not a guarantee. Um, so it shouldn't it shouldn't make you delay. Is age is it as important as people say? And what are the sort of eight, the sort of benchmark ages that we should be thinking about? Yeah, the, the single most important determinant of whether someone gets pregnant or not naturally or through fertility treatment is their age. And that's because age is what determines egg quality, primarily determines egg quality. 
So the environment and whether we smoke or not and what we eat affects air quality a little bit, but nowhere near as much as our genetics and, and what we've been born with, essentially. So the older we are, unfortunately, the longer the eggs ha have had to accumulate DNA damage and, and reduce in quality. So below 35, people have the highest chance of success you know, through, through IVF because the egg quality is good, particularly from kind of 37, 38 the quality starts to decline more quickly. Um, and then really by the time you're in your sort of approaching the mid forties, you know, unfortunately the chances with, with your own eggs are, are becoming really quite low. And I think, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that IVF can't overcome that effect on egg quality. And that's why its success rates go down. A lot of people come to me in their, you know, early forties and, and think that IVF is going to sort of solve that problem. And, Yes, it can help, but it can't. It, unfortunately, the success rates in our 40s are just still still lower than people realise, I think. Yeah. And can I ask a quick question about donors, please? So both same-sex couples and heterosexual couples who would need a donor, what is the process in the UK? And is it as regulated as other countries? Is it more regulated? How do you pay for it? And what sort of information can you know about the donor that you choose? Yeah, so um, we're, we've got a great system in the UK for, for donor sperm and, and donor eggs. Um, but uh, also a lot of patients will go abroad, um, both for donor sperm and donor eggs. So both options are, are very valid. In the UK, donation isn't actually anonymous. So the child, when they're 18, has the right to find out who the donor donor is. But when you're choosing, say, donor sperm or donor eggs, um, it's a bit weird. It's a bit like online, online shopping or something. You, you <laughs> literally go to a sperm bank or an egg bank and they'll have the profiles of, of all the all the donors. Um, and so you get, you know, you can filter it by hair color, eye color, height, occupation, religion, ethnicity, you know, quite a lot of kind of um, factors. It's like um, hinge on steroids. That's mad. <laughs> yeah. Um, and can you see facial features to try and match your facial features with somebody, or is it more those sort of anonymized, blonde, blue-eyed? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, no photos. So just yeah, exactly. Just the descriptions. Um, but but it's it's really good because I think that reassures people, you know, that they can get you know get a close match. Um, and um, then all the donors legally in the UK are really really well screened as well. So for genetic conditions, um, infection, so all these things just to make sure that it's you know completely safe and, and minimise you know the risks from from donation. Mm. And I'm surprised that we actually have lots of sperm banks or people who are donating sperm if the child can find the donor at 18 because I can imagine for some people that must be a little bit off-putting or a bit worrying. Well, it's really interesting so that that law came in in 2008 and um, where previously it was completely anonymous and uh, everyone expected the number of donors just to you know fall off a cliff but actually it didn't um and uh, a lot of them you know are really happy to you know to be contacted and they the, the child can find out and um, who the donor is but then the donor can have specified whether they wish to be contacted or not but so there is there is still another level of choice there as well and would the donor have any legal rights i'm guessing not over the child or have to, the child can't 
ask for anything at 18 it's more just find out who their donor is yeah exactly so obviously the 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 donors are legally protected so that they've got no parental responsibility but um so what happens in the fertility clinics is when you're using donor sperm there's discussions and consent forms to clearly identify who the legal parents of that child are going to be because the 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 person who carries the pregnancy is one legal parent but then their partner you know um or uh, if they're in a civil partnership or married or whatever that they can be the named as the legal parent if you do the, if you do the correct forms uh, before the treatment oh good to know yeah that is really good to know I could chat all day. I still have so many questions, but I, I think we do probably need to wrap up. But it, honestly, this has been a really useful overview of all these different options. I had no idea about most of this before I came into this chat, despite you know people talking about it in the media and with each other. So this has just been really, really useful to bust some myths for me. But thank you so, so much for everything. It's been incredibly useful. Well, it's been really nice to chat to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.